Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl, and today's episode concludes our four-part rebuttal to the Audible podcast, Think Twice. Voice actor Derek Black will be helping me with the quoted material. And for all sources referred to in this episode, you can visit our website, michaeljacksoncasefornessense.com. At the beginning of Think Twice, Leon Nafok and Jay Smooth tell us that they're not going to try and prove guilt or innocence regarding the sex abuse allegations against Michael Jackson. But the problem is they presume guilt. All their stories are meant to suggest guilt, and their podcast narrative doesn't work unless he's guilty. I contend that it violates basic journalism ethics to presume guilt in these horrible crimes, without revealing the flaws in the guilty argument and the evidence for Jackson's innocence. At the very least, they could have been honest up front and admitted they are presuming guilt and not going to examine any contrary evidence. They could have revealed that there's a mountain of evidence out there and referred their audience to sources that provide evidence for innocence, like the Michael Jackson Allegations website, or the Square One documentary, or even the legal documents of the accusers. In the past two episodes, I've taken you through some of the evidence and wider context that was left out of Think Twice. In this final episode, I'll circle back to part one in our series, when I mentioned how journalism schools and ethics groups recommend the practice of considering the opposite, before launching into media projects, in order to reduce the risk of bias and getting things wrong. So today, I'll present what it might have looked like if instead of presuming guilt, Think Twice had considered the opposite, that Michael Jackson was innocent. I'll also put forward an alternative response to the driving question behind Think Twice. Why are we still listening to Michael Jackson? Several months into my research of the Michael Jackson allegations back in 2019, I took a walk with my best friend from high school, Lynn, and she was excited to find out more about this unusual project of mine. Because I never took an interest in Michael Jackson before, my podcast really sparked her curiosity. Lynn didn't have an opinion about Michael Jackson's guilt or innocence, But when I explained to her that the media quickly jumped to support the accusers after the release of Leaving Neverland, she remarked to me in puzzlement, but wasn't he fully acquitted in his trial? Now Lynn of course knows that juries can get it wrong, but her initial response highlights her respect for our legal process and the ideal of innocent until proven guilty. I'm sure we can all in theory appreciate the rules of the courtroom to ensure fairness as opposed to the court of public opinion, where there are no rules of evidence, no cross-examinations, and no guaranteed representation for the other side. Lynn's fair-mindedness and her skepticism about the media's snap judgment underscores the difference I see between the media versus the general public's response to the sex abuse claims against Michael Jackson. The media, including the hosts of Think Twice, love to promote the narrative that the public is overlooking bad behavior because they're blinded by Michael Jackson's fame, or they just can't let go of their nostalgia for his music, or because of what they suggest was Jackson's clever Peter Pan persona that he took on to manipulate public opinion. But what I've overwhelmingly heard from friends, neighbors, ladies in the hair salon, employees at our local grocery store, is that their caution in judging Michael Jackson's guilt has nothing to do with his fame or their love for him. But it's because they just don't know the evidence. 
Like Lynn, people have been very curious when they hear of my research. And while most don't seem to have a fixed judgment of guilt or innocence, they almost all expressed a knowing caution about the self-interests of the media, with a huge celebrity story like this. Public opinion polls reveal a resounding distrust in the media. A Gallup poll from September 2022 shows that only 7% of Americans have a great deal of trust in the media. Almost 70% either don't have much confidence or none at all. These numbers reflect the wariness we've had about the media for the past 20 years. Another Gallup survey from 2021 asked Americans to rate the honesty and ethics of different occupational groups. And while nurses and grade school teachers top the list of most ethical professions, ranking very low on the list are journalists, with only 14% of Americans believing that TV reporters are highly ethical, and almost half believing they're highly unethical. Journalists rank below the also poorly ranked lawyers and bankers. We the public have plenty of experience watching the media jump to conclusions with devastating consequences. In the case of Richard Jewell in 2006, the press prematurely used the authority of the FBI to sell the public on a compelling storyline. The press couldn't resist the narrative that Jewell planted a bomb at the Atlanta Olympics so he could be seen as the hero. This captivating storyline overrode the reporter's duty to slow down and get all the facts first. But their bomber narrative turned out to be completely wrong. CNN President Tom Johnson later reflected that he would go to his grave regretting how their actions led to ruining Jewel's life. And he says the lesson was that they should have slowed down. CNN reporter Harry Schuster explained that it was the pressure of being scooped by the Atlanta Journal that caused CNN to revise their story and say that Jewel was a suspect. That's the critical point when he says the media and law enforcement formed a collective weight that turned Jewel from a hero to a villain. CNN later tried to correct the error by revealing how it was impossible that Jewel could have made that 911 call. But Schuster says by that time the hero turned villain narrative had a life of its own and it was too late. The media was camped out in front of Jewel's apartment and relentlessly followed and harassed him. But the real Olympic bomber turned out to be Eric Robert Rudolph, who was arrested five years later. Schuster regrets how his ratings-driven actions led to destroying a man's life. Here's his conclusions in a 2019 perspective from the Washington Post. In my own reporting, I've learned to be more skeptical of sources, especially when they claim to speak for government, especially at its highest levels. My stories these days don't go to air without relentless fact-checking. And my scripts have more footnotes than any term paper I did in college. The jewel case of getting it wrong is just one of many illustrating the media's premature rush to judgment. So it makes sense that the general public might be wary about the media narrative of Michael Jackson without seeing a thorough vetting of the claims against him. And the quick alignment of the media and law enforcement to target Jewel, despite exculpatory evidence, mirrors the Michael Jackson allegations in 1993 and 2003. In addition to hearing the regrets from journalists in the field, there's also voices of caution coming from schools of law and journalism, warning the public about how podcasts are especially vulnerable to inaccuracies and unfairness. Deakin Law School's Deputy Dean Marilyn McMahon 
says that despite the massive popularity of crime podcasts, there are problems that interfere with due process. She writes, Podcasts can present a great challenge to the fundamental legal presumption that a person is innocent until proven guilty. They frequently focus on a person of interest, provide very detailed and persuasive evidence that the person is the offender, while disregarding any contrary information, thereby creating a narrative that's both memorable and influential. Consequently, we have to accept that podcasts often don't start with the presumption of innocence or satisfy other legal standards. This was the fundamental mistake I saw in Think Twice, and in almost every media project about the Michael Jackson allegations. The creators did not start with a presumption of innocence, but began their projects with a presumption of guilt, then only looked for stories and narratives that could support their guilty themes, and ignored the evidence that discredited the accuser's stories. For example, in the 1993 Chandler case, Think Twice presents misleading stories about the father not mentioning money in his phone call, or Jordan giving a very detailed abuse report but they leave out how Jordan changed his innocent story, only under threats and intimidation. They never present the evidence that Jordan's father and lawyer had very shady histories, uncontrolled mental health issues, and debt. They never present how the actions of his father and lawyer were very suspicious, such as keeping Jordan from going to the police after his coerced confession, or demanding money before going public. Think Twice puts extraordinary faith in the stories of all four accusers and their families. They don't fact-check them. As the Harvey Weinstein reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey say is critical for journalism. If you just saw the evidence and didn't have Michael Jackson's name attached to it, you would without question discredit these accusers. Because we all, in theory, know that credibility matters. When you lie, mislead, and deceive repeatedly, your stories can't be trusted. But credibility doesn't seem to matter in the eyes of the media or law enforcement when it comes to Michael Jackson, because of their own self-interests and bias. The media has certainly profited from the Michael Jackson fall-from-grace narrative again and again, in clickbait articles and titillating documentaries. If you're a journalist looking for a podcast subject to draw listeners, choosing Michael Jackson is a smart choice. But I don't see journalists taking precautions against this self-interest bias in these well-crafted but inadequately researched podcasts and documentaries about Michael Jackson. Social psychologist David Dunning is famous for identifying a cognitive bias where people fail to see the flaws in their own thinking and fail to see the answers they lack. In the case of the Michael Jackson allegations, one of the answers the media seems to lack is the accuser's history of deception. This lack of self-insight is now known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning explains that we're all confident idiots, but he says there is a method to recognize our own misbeliefs. His first recommendation for making a judgment on a matter of importance is to have yourself or someone else play the role of devil's advocate, to rigorously question and criticize the favored conclusions. He says to honestly ask yourself how you might be wrong, consider the opposite, imagine you are wrong, and look for evidence that proves you're wrong. So let's say, before they launched their Think Twice project, Nafok and Smooth decided to follow journalism fairness standards and rigorously challenge their presumption of guilt. They could have started this process by asking the question, what else has to be true if Michael Jackson was innocent? and then honestly looked for and weighed evidence supporting the innocence premise. 
I'm going to walk us through using this approach of considering the alternative by presenting six of the most obvious circumstances that would have to be true if Jackson was innocent. Number one, there would have to be something seriously unethical about leaving Neverland. This 2019 documentary is the reason Nafok and Smooth and many in the media believe Jackson molested children. They were convinced because of the compelling stories by the accusers and their families. They were also convinced because of the images and audio the filmmakers selected to put on screen. If Michael Jackson was innocent, Leaving Neverland must be intentionally misleading its audience. And indeed, what I found when I fact-checked this documentary is an alarming deception by all parties. The accusers, their families, and the filmmaker himself, Dan Reed. I covered this deception in episodes 15 through 18 of our season 1, so I'm not going to get into the details here. But the key points are the many provable falsehoods in this documentary, accounts that don't match with known facts, and serious contradictions between the stories in Leaving Neverland and the sworn testimony by these accusers and their families. Both of the mothers repeatedly demonstrated that they were willing to twist the facts and change their stories to support their sons. And if you want the quickest way to understand the degree of dishonesty by the filmmaker Dan Reed, listen to our episode 16, and you'll hear how Reed cuts out a vital sentence from a public statement by Jackson's lawyer, a sentence that completely changes the meaning of the audio clip featured in Leaving Neverland. When presented with the original unedited news footage, Reed doubled down on his misinformation rather than admitting this undeniable error. He brushes off any questions about not presenting the other side by glibly saying there's nothing to see on the other side. He's asking his audience to place enormous trust in his integrity without any replicable fact-checking system to justify this trust. Not ethically acceptable when you're accusing someone of the most heinous crimes imaginable. The lack of transparency and ethics by Reed in making this film is rampant. We dedicate our entire episode 18 to showing how Reed manipulated the audience by creating an airtight narrative of child predation, a creation that required him to employ underhanded tactics, such as twisting timelines, deceptively editing audio, intentionally leaving out contextual information, and not giving the other side a chance to respond, and reveal evidence that undermines his subject's credibility. Even the media who believed the stories in Leaving Neverland admit it was one-sided. But not one major journalist bothered to seek out what wasn't shown in this documentary before condemning Michael Jackson. So if Jackson was innocent, Leaving Neverland would have to be an intentional effort to mislead the audience. And the evidence shows that's exactly the case here. Number two, all the accusers would have to be lying. If Jackson was innocent, that means all four of his accusers, Jordan Chandler, Gavin Arvizo, Wade Robson, and James Safechuck, would have to be lying about being abused. The evidence backs this up. This isn't just a matter of confusing some places or dates. It took me 20 episodes in our season 1 to present the almost line-by-line disinformation, lack of transparency, and contradictions in Evan Chandler's book, in Jordan Chandler's psychiatrist interview, 
in the testimony of the entire Arvizo family, in the legal claims of Wade Robson and James Safechuck, and in the Leaving Neverland documentary. In part two of this rebuttal, you heard a clip from lawyers stunned at the nonstop lying by the entire Arvizo family on the witness stand, and their assessment that the Arvizo family simply can't be trusted. To further emphasize the level of deceit I'm talking about, I'll play another clip, this one from journalist Megan Kelly. Here's her response after taking the time to inspect the legal documents in Wade Robson's lawsuit, who she calls the choreographer. Well, we can get into it because I actually went in all my spare time, Adam, this is what I do with my spare time. I went, I pulled the court files on Woody Allen at one point. I went, I pulled the court files on Michael Jackson at one point. And I will tell you that what that one guy, the guy who was the choreographer, he had so many problems in his history. This guy was under, he was filing a lawsuit against the Jackson estate. They said, do you ever write a book on Michael Jackson? He said, nope. They said, hmm. Let's just call around a random house and everybody else and make sure that's not true. Well, sure enough, he had submitted something. Then he was told by the court, if you have drafts of that, including metadata on your computer, computer, turn it over. He lied. They got their hands on a computer. They found all sorts of metadata. He had tried to change it before he turned over. I'm just saying lots of lies in that guy's history in dealing with court. So you tell me whether he'd tell the truth to a documentary yeah, maker. First it all, wasn't a documentary. You do a pod- but Robson's court documents weren't even on the source pages of Think Twice. And in fact, no legal documents in any of the cases are listed. And while lying on its own isn't enough to say the abuse didn't happen, this staggering degree of manipulativeness and deception should make it obvious that we can't trust their stories. So if Jackson were innocent, his accusers would have to be lying. And the evidence overwhelmingly supports that his accusers have a history of deceit. Number three, the accusers would have to have incredible incentives to lie. If Jackson was innocent, his accusers would have to have some massive incentives and certain characteristics that would predispose them to this kind of scam. After all, it seems inconceivable that these guys would lie to their families or willingly put themselves in the spotlight with false stories of abuse. Well, all of these guys had the incentives that deception researchers say motivates people to lie. They were all in financial straits and seeking money from Jackson. They were all seeking fame and entertainment. They all had relevant mental illness, and critically, they were all mad at Jackson that he didn't do more for them, both financially and in their careers in Hollywood. You can't fully understand the incentives here unless you understand the accusers were part of whole family systems with entitlement mentalities that helped them justify their deceit. Number four, all the other kids that hung out with Jackson would have to be telling the truth. If Jackson was innocent, you would expect that most of the men who spent a lot of time with him as kids would tell the truth and defend his innocence. And that's exactly what happened here. Dozens of guys who actually spent more time with Jackson than his accusers say nothing happened. That it was a genuine friendship, and that Jackson's generosity came from innocent and kind intentions. These friends also all agree that Jackson trusted people too much, which made him vulnerable to bad actors. This overwhelming majority of guys who defend his innocence did not put Jackson on a pedestal and unlike his accusers, didn't expect him to promote their careers. As we noted in our deception episode from Season 1, cheating and scamming are an unwanted but unavoidable aspect of our society. Given any opening for a dishonest reward, 
there's always been some minority of our population willing to cheat and scam to take advantage of the opportunity. Romance scams, elder fraud, healthcare fraud, college admission scandals, cheating on taxes, cheating in sports. In every aspect of society, no matter how egregious the offense, there are cheaters. So when it comes to Michael Jackson, if he was innocent and naive when he allowed families access to his personal space, you should expect that some minority of these families would take advantage of this vulnerability and try to cash in. And these four accusers out of dozens is the breakdown you would expect to find. Number five, you can't look at Jackson's unusual behaviors and characteristics from a perspective of how a child predator would act. And think twice and often in the public mind, once he was accused of sex abuse, Jackson's eccentric behavior became linked with deviant behavior. In Think Twice, they brought up Jackson's friendships with kids, Neverland, his unusual pets, and his comments about connecting to Peter Pan. But if Jackson was innocent, his distinctive behaviors and traits would have to come from an innocent mindset. This is a topic we focus on in our upcoming Season 2. But in brief, I did find innocent circumstances that could logically explain Jackson's otherness. He grew up quite sheltered, which conversely left him with a lot of freedom to explore and nurture his creative side in music and performance. And this creative mindset was compounded by his extremely sensitive nature. I'm going to play you some audio of Michael Jackson from 1983. And although you have to put up with some pretty loud background noise of a fountain, you can get a sense of the freedom of his thought process. He's talking here about what inspires his work. <laughs> you feel the music, it's like a painter, I guess. You, just, you approach the canvas with the paint and the brush and you're inspired by things around you, I guess, and what's inside of you. And you do it. And, uh, and I like creating magic. When I explain magic, I mean wonderment, um, excitement, um, the unexpected, escapism, creating something that's so incredible, an illusion. To put people in a situation, no matter what it may be, and give them totally the opposite or the unexpected, so much more than what they thought would happen. I mean, just blow their mind. That's, I like creating magic, excellence. I, I love doing that. Ah, nothing like it. <laughs> I try to do it in everything I do, really. My God, it's dusk. The moon is out. Most beautiful part of the day. I can see some of the stars coming out. Very beautiful. Everything comes to life. The fireflies are in the trees and everything's becoming magic. It's it is I, I would say it is my favorite part of the day. Dawn and dusk. There's a certain magic about it. Um 
It does seem like everything, uh, the prey up on the night starts to, you know, come out, be it the creatures, be it the, the birds that return to their nests. I like dawn also. Some psychologists say that that dusk, for, for a lot of creative people, you, you reach your alpha state subconsciously and you become more creative in certain parts of the day. But for me, it can be any time, you know. I am, I just like creating. It's no special time, but this is really magic to me because it's like, um, it's like a painting. It's very artistic. It's magic. It's so wonderful. His music collaborators, such as Brad Buxer and Matt Forger, have talked about how Jackson basically approached every minute of his day in a creative state of mind. Jackson guitarist Jennifer Batten called him a creative tornado. And choreographer Travis Payne has described Jackson as having unparalleled creative energy and that no one could keep up. Jackson just saw the world in a fresh, open, and meaningful way. And this could explain why he might speak and behave so differently from the rest of us. Additionally, he was notably idealistic about the world because of his religious beliefs, and this naturally affected his behavior. He followed the example set by his mother, who was instinctively generous in opening her home to even strangers and trusted too much. Michael mirrored this generosity and his quickness to trust and opening his home to fans he met along the way. Because of his religion, he felt strongly that his success and money was not to be squirreled away for himself but to be shared with others. Be it his friends, his fans, or for children with disabilities or other disadvantages. If you're looking for an innocent perspective on Jackson's atypical behaviors, there's plenty of supportive material to mine. Number six, there would have to be serious incentives and a guilty bias for both the media and the police. If Jackson was innocent, that means both the media and police got it wrong. So there must have been a failure in how both investigated these accusations. Well, check and check. We've gone over their lack of due process in detail especially the failure to thoroughly fact-check the accuser's stories. The district attorney, the police detectives, and the media jumped to the conclusion that Jackson was guilty. And because of their own professional self-interest, the guilty narrative was just too compelling to consider the alternative, which blinded them to the evidence that these accusers had no credibility. These are just six of the most obvious circumstances that would have to be true if Jackson was innocent. It's an example of a consider-the-opposite approach versus the think-twice approach, starting at square one with a guilty premise and then only filtering and shaping stories that suggest guilt, like the red herrings of how the Arvizos didn't file civil claims or how Evan Chandler didn't mention money in his phone call. This spin on reality was a clear red flag to me about the journalistic motives behind Think Twice. A few months ago, I had lunch with my financial advisor, and she also asked about my podcast project, which had been taking up so much of my time. She had no judgment about Michael Jackson's guilt or innocence and wasn't a fan. But as someone with a law degree, her first comment to me was about how we should be cautious about the self-interests of documentary filmmakers and podcasters, 
who have all the power to shape an award-winning narrative without rules of evidence. She emphasized how the media, first and foremost, is a business. They need to make money to earn a living, and that bias is often not taken into account when listening to these stories. It was a good reminder to keep Upton Sinclair's famous quote in mind: "It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it." As an example of this financial bias, we can go back to our own episode 17, where we have a quote from tabloid broker Paul Barisi about the 1993 Chandler allegations. My interest in helping them was that they promised me a percentage of what they got. I was not on any kind of crusade to、uh, bring anyone to justice, and、uh, whether Michael was guilty or innocent at that point was inconsequential.、Uh, my interest was strictly for the money, as was their interest too. I might add. Barisi admitted that he didn't care if it was true or not. If you could get someone connected to Jackson to suggest it's true, that's all they needed, because the narrative was just too juicy and profitable to resist. And while we, the general public, all have our own biases, as we covered in our deception episode, there isn't the same kind of bias that comes from the financial and professional incentives in the field of journalism. So it's apparent to me that the reason Michael Jackson hasn't been completely canceled isn't because of some special quality of fame or spectacular PR efforts, but it's because the public isn't as blinded by bias as those working in the media. Most people know he was acquitted in a court of law, and they know they don't understand the evidence well enough to challenge twelve jurors, who spent months tediously evaluating the testimony of almost a hundred and fifty witnesses. We've all seen cases of prosecutorial excess and bias, such as in the overturned convictions of Adnan Syed and Curtis Flowers, who benefited from extraordinary journalistic work to expose this misconduct. Without looking at the evidence, how do you know if the police and prosecutors handled these cases fairly? I think most people don't want to condemn Michael Jackson and forever sully his reputation when they don't know the evidence. I've reached out to Leon Nafok and Jay Smooth, inviting them into a conversation about their podcast, and especially to give them a chance to respond to this criticism of confirmation bias. In failing to consider the alternative, if they're receptive, I would also invite other innocence advocates to join, as part of a panel discussion. Advocates who we could all agree are fair-minded, respectful, and have a long history of researching the allegations. Here's a few questions I'd like to ask Nafok and Smooth: What are the fact-checking standards that should be applied before you publicly presume someone's guilt? Especially within a podcast series that's being promoted on NPR and other prominent platforms like the New York Times, do you agree you are presuming guilt and not thoroughly considering the opposite? Does the credibility of the accusers matter when you're making a judgment of Jackson's guilt? How did you assess their credibility? How do you justify going on a podcast and propagating a guilty narrative without talking to the many people close to Jackson? Who adamantly support his innocence? We're talking about a presumption of guilt that's been enormously damaging to a man's legacy and causing incredible pain to his family, his friends, and fans. 
If you're wrong and you're helping a few bad actors cash in on Michael Jackson's vulnerabilities, then it's a huge and tragic injustice. The stakes are very high, and this podcast did not follow professional ethics standards and fact-check accusations. Before broadcasting the narrative that suggests Michael Jackson was guilty of child molestation, it would be a gesture of fairness to actually talk to the people that you've tacitly disparaged as blindly supporting Jackson's innocence. You might be surprised by information or perspectives you never even considered. Journalism is supposed to be driven by curiosity about your subject, not complacency. It would show true curiosity if you were open and willing to discuss exactly what the other side is arguing, not presuming it's conspiracy theories by obsessed fans. How do you know if you don't engage? Especially engaging with advocates such as myself who've provided fully sourced evidence for all four cases. There was no fan bias because my research was initially based on a bias to guilt, because of my exposure to the media certainty of his guilt. And I have no financial incentive to promote his innocence. This is an extremely time-consuming volunteer effort that's motivated out of a mother's desire to set an example for her daughter, an example of doing whatever it takes to get at the truth and then doing whatever you can to correct an injustice based on the overwhelming evidence of innocence. I was especially upset about Think Twice because I think so highly of Leon Nafok's other podcasts, like Fiasco and Slow Burn, which we listened to as a family. It was very disappointing to see his name behind this project. It's not that I believe there's intentional trickery going on here, like you find in Leaving Neverland. But to me, the journalistic neglect and think twice just goes to show that we're all susceptible to biases, no matter how intelligent or experienced, which is why there are standards that should be followed, no matter how much confidence you have in your conclusions. I'll close with a quote by Nafok himself and think twice, commenting about how easy it is to interpret past events incorrectly. I think the reason it grabbed me and has stuck with me is that it reveals how easy it is for people like us, you know, looking back at past events, to impose narratives on what happened that just aren't correct. I wish Nafok would have paid more attention to this caution when it came to his own podcast. I'll post any response I receive from Nafok or Smooth on Twitter, at Case the Number 4 Innocence. And that concludes this four-part rebuttal to Think Twice. For all source material in this episode, you can visit our website, michaeljacksoncasefornissons.com. You can reach out to us through our website or on Twitter, at Case the Number 4 Innocence. What's coming up next for our podcast is Season 2, where we're taking a look at the personal and professional side of Michael Jackson. You'll hear details about Jackson's childhood and family life, about his personality and character traits and we'll be comparing this to the research on the backgrounds and traits typical of child predators. You'll hear the stories of friends, family members, colleagues, and employees. And I think those who aren't Michael Jackson fans will be surprised to find out the depth of friendship he had with many adults in his life, and also surprised at how the collective weight of these accounts reveal a very different picture of Jackson's character, behavior, and his day-to-day life a picture that strongly supports his innocence, 
because of the amount of work it took to put this rebuttal together. Our release date for season two is a lot later than expected, but I'll keep you posted on Twitter about its release in 2024. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast.